Intrauterine circulation is dependent on the placenta for vital processes, including nutrition, respiration, waste elimination, and metabolism. At birth, a circulatory transition occurs during which the heart, which develops at the end of gestational week three, takes over vital processes. During this episode, we will discuss cardiac formation, the transition to the extrauterine environment, and disruptions in the cardiac development. Welcome to NICU Ride and Review, a podcast providing up-to-date reviews and case presentations on important NICU topics. Hello everyone, thank you for joining me. My name is Danielle and I will apologize in advance. Everyone in my house is getting over a little bit of a cold. So if my voice is a little bit raspy, that is why, but we will make it through this episode. And this is going to be our cardiovascular episode of NICU Ride and Review. The heart forms at the end of gestational week three with the first heartbeat on around day 22. Active fetal blood flow doesn't actually begin until the end of gestational week four, with the four chambers of the heart developing by gestational week seven. The four chambers that develop by the end of gestational week seven include the right atrium and right ventricle and the left atrium and left ventricle. So the right side of the heart is responsible for pumping blood to the lungs and the left side of the heart is responsible for pumping blood to the rest of the body. There are two other major components of the heart that we need to discuss. First is the foramen ovale, which is a connection between the right and left atrium. Second is the ductus arteriosus, which is a connection between the pulmonary artery and the aorta. These two ducts allow for a right to left shunt to bypass the fetal lungs, because if we think to fetal circulation, the fetus relies on oxygen received from maternal circulation through the placenta. Therefore, the fetal lung circulation in utero is not necessary. So we've discussed six major components of the heart, four chambers, two ducts. So let's talk about some other components of the heart for a little bit. First, we have the epicardium, which we all know that is the outer lining of the heart. Then we have the aortic and pulmonic arteries. The aorta is the main artery that comes off of the left side of the heart because it is responsible for carrying oxygenated blood to the rest of the body. And then you have your pulmonic arteries that come off of the right side of the heart because they carry deoxygenated blood to the lungs. In addition, we also have our heart valves. The aortic heart valve, which is between the left ventricle and aorta. The pulmonic heart valve between the right ventricle and pulmonary artery. The tricuspid valve between the right atrium and right ventricle. And the mitral valve between the left atrium and left ventricle. So we talked about two ducts already. We talked about the foramen ovale, the connection between the atria, and the ductus arteriosus, the connection between the pulmonary artery and aorta, both of which allow blood to bypass the lungs. However, there's a third duct that we need to discuss, 
and it is called the ductus venosus and it is in the liver. So what happens with this duct is it allows about 50 to 60% of umbilical vein blood to bypass the hepatic circulation and enter the inferior vena cava and enter the right side of the heart. The remaining 40 to 50% that does not bypass the hepatic circulation perfuses the liver and then it will later merge with the desaturated blood and enter the IVC as well. However, we do have to remember that that duct is there to nourish and oxygenate the liver. And lastly, before we kind of put everything together, you have some vasoregulatory agents that aid in maintaining your pulmonary vascular resistance that is necessary for fetal circulation. So in fetal circulation, the pulmonary vascular resistance is very high, which allows the blood to bypass the lungs because our blood takes the path of least resistance. So that extremely high pulmonary vascular resistance or PVR is necessary to allow that blood to bypass the lungs and enter the rest of fetal circulation. So there are two main agents that aid in maintaining that high PVR. So you will hear these quite frequently. Um, and those two agents are prostaglandins and endothelin one. So we discussed the major components of the heart as well as their responsibilities. So now we'll talk about the newborn transition to extrauterine life. There is a cardiovascular transition that must occur. So up until delivery or birth, the placenta has been responsible for nutrition, waste elimination, and the exchange of oxygen and waste products. So once the low resistance placental circulation is removed, the systemic vascular resistance in the newborn increases. With lung expansion and increased oxygenation over the in utero values, the pulmonary vascular bed dilates and the PVR that we discussed earlier falls by approximately 80%, which generates thoracic pressures. So then around 90% of the right ventricular output will now go through the pulmonary arteries instead of the ductus arteriosus. So now with the increase in systemic vascular resistance or SVR, and the decrease in PVR, there will be higher left atrium pressures and it will force the closure of our foramen ovale. And if we remember, the foramen ovale connects our atria. It is the connection between the right atrium and the left atrium. So now when deoxygenated blood enters the right side of our heart, it will go through the pulmonary arteries to the lungs to pick up oxygen. The oxygenated blood then re-enters the left side of the heart through the pulmonary veins. So it will enter the left atrium into the left ventricle and out of the aorta. The aorta will deliver the blood systemically. So to the brain, upper and lower body. Within about 24 hours after birth, oxygen consumption actually triples. So it causes a significant increase in cardiac output. The left ventricle then must hypertrophy 
and remodel. Because if we think about our fetal circulation, the left ventricle was not the main pumping channel in utero. We had that placenta that provided us all of our nutrients, and then we had our ducts that did a lot of bypassing of the lungs. And so by bypassing the lungs, we did not have that large return of blood into the left side of our heart for it to be then pumped out of the aorta. So now our left ventricle must learn how to do its job. It's gotta build some muscle pretty quickly because it's now the main pumping channel of the heart. The ductus arteriosus begins to close almost immediately after birth, but can remain open for several days. Within the first 12 hours after birth, there is one of two closures that occurs. The first closure is a functional closure, and this means that the ductus arteriosus is closed. However, under certain circumstances, it can be reopened. And then the second closure is known as an anatomic closure, and this can actually take up to a month. And with this closure, it means that the ductus is actually anatomically closed and cannot be reopened. So closure of the ductus is mediated by oxygen, even room air. And at birth, the baby takes that big deep breath, oxygen increases, and then there's also a decreased sensitivity to the prostaglandins that we talked about earlier. Remember, prostaglandin is a vasoregulatory agent that is responsible for keeping the ducts open in utero. So an increase in oxygen, decreased sensitivity to the prostaglandin will cause closure of your ductus arteriosus. So lastly, let's discuss what happens in the event of in utero stress. Unfortunately, there is not a wide variety of responses from a fetus in the event of stress. So in the event of hypoxia or volume depletion, the fetus cannot increase umbilical flow, nor can it increase cardiac output. So typically, to compensate, the fetus will decrease oxygen consumption and growth by redistributing cardiac output to the most vital organs. And with this redistribution, unfortunately, the most commonly compromised system is the GI system. So remembering again, the fetus cannot increase umbilical flow and it cannot increase cardiac output. It redistributes cardiac output to the most vital organs. So now that we have discussed fetal circulation, it is such a specific process that occurs in utero and we have to remember fetal circulation versus infant or newborn circulation is two very different processes. Just a quick break, but for study questions and to find out more about this podcast, please visit our Facebook page at Nikki Ride and Review. So now that we have a good understanding of the development of the fetal heart and some circulation, we're just going to run through normal fetal circulation one more time just to make sure we have a strong foundation and understanding.
oxygenated and nutrient-rich fetal blood from the placenta enters the umbilical vein. 50 to 60% of this blood bypasses the liver through the ductus venosus and enters the IVC, the inferior vena cava. The remaining 40 to 50% enters the portal vein to supply the liver with nutrients and oxygen. Blood entering the right atrium from the IVC bypasses the right ventricle and the lungs, which are not functioning in utero, and enter the left atrium via the foramen ovale. Blood from the superior vena cava, or SVC, enters the right atrium, passes into the right ventricle, and moves into the pulmonary trunk. Most of this blood enters the aorta via the ductus arteriosus through a right to left shunt. The partially oxygenated blood in the aorta returns to the placenta via the paired umbilical arteries that arise from the internal iliac arteries. So, as a reminder, the right ventricular output is directed to the lower half of the body and the placenta, and the left ventricular output is directed towards the coronary and carotid arteries supplying the heart muscle, the heart wall, and the brain. So later on in this episode, we will discuss a case study as well as some cardiac defects. So before we get to that, the last thing we will review are the three stages of transition in which a newborn goes through. The three stages include immediate, fast, and final transition to extrauterine life. During the immediate stage, there's a loss of the low resistance circuit due to cord clamping. PVR will decrease and SVR will increase. Pulmonary vascular resistance is decreased by half in the first minute of life and about 80% overall. The first breath causes absorption of fluid into the interstitium, leading to decreased PVR. Skin cooling causes increased systemic vasoconstriction, leading to increased SVR. These changes will encourage the closure of the foramen ovale as well as the ductus arteriosus. Left atrium pressures being greater than right atrium pressures will force closure of the foramen ovale. Increase in oxygenation and decrease in the sensitivity to the prostaglandins will cause constriction of the ductus arteriosus. Second is the fast phase, which occurs within the first 24 hours of life. During this phase, there is an increase in the SVR and during this period, there's also the greatest overall decrease in PBR. There's also production of vasodilators such as nitric oxide. Lastly, you guessed it, it's the final phase. This phase can actually last from several days to several months. This phase involves primary remodeling of the pulmonary vasculature. We must remember that the lungs are not used in utero. Therefore, the pulmonary arteries are muscular and tightly closed in utero. So during this phase, those arteries must remodel to make sure that the lungs are used appropriately in the newborn life. So I know that was a lot of information, but having a good solid understanding of fetal development and newborn transition will be extremely beneficial in your physical assessment as well as identifying any abnormalities. Before we dive into the cardiac defects and disruptions, 
we will review the history and clinical course of an infant diagnosed with a congenital cyanotic heart disease. I reveal which one after we have talked through five of the major defects. The infant we will be reviewing is Baby Daisy. Daisy is not her real name to protect her privacy, but Baby Daisy was born at 25 weeks and one day to an 18-year-old mother with preeclampsia with severe features. All of mom's prenatal serologies were negative, and she had no history of alcohol, tobacco, or illicit drug use. Mom received a complete course of dexamethasone and 24 hours of magnesium sulfate. Baby Daisy was also diagnosed with severe IUGR as well as reversed end diastolic flow. She was born via C-section with APGARs of 1, 1, and 8 at 1 minute, 5 minutes, and 10 minutes of life. She was then intubated at 11 minutes of life. She received surfactant in the delivery room. Systems Overview Respiratory. Baby Daisy was intubated with mechanical ventilation for respiratory support. Her blood gases showed persistent mixed respiratory and metabolic acidosis. Cardiovascular. She was hypotensive requiring a dopamine drip and hydrocortisone. She had no murmur on admission, however developed a new murmur on day of life 5 with pink tinged secretions from her ET tube. FEN and GI. She was NPO on admission with D10% with amino acids infusing through an umbilical venous catheter. Hematology. Mother and baby were both B positive with negative antibody screens. However, baby Daisy required multiple blood transfusions in the first week of life. Infectious disease. A sepsis screen was completed by sending a CBC with diff and blood cultures on admission. No antibiotics were immediately started. The blood culture would be negative after five days of no growth. Neuro. Three doses of neuroprotective indocin was ordered. However, she only received one dose. So that is the review of Baby Daisy's history and her admission clinical overview. We will go back to Baby Daisy and I'll give you more details about her final diagnosis after we review some congenital heart diseases. Critical congenital heart defects are a subset of congenital heart defects that require immediate diagnosis and intervention. And just for clarification, for the remainder of the podcast, I will refer to critical congenital heart defects as CCHD. So this refers to defects in the heart structure that may involve the valves, the great vessels, including the aorta, the vena cava, the pulmonary arteries, and the pulmonary veins, and or the interior walls of the heart. So if you already work with newborns, I'm sure you have completed a pulse oximeter CCHD screening, but if you have not, that's fine. We're going to review it so that everyone has a good solid understanding. CCHD screening involves placement of a pulse oximeter on the right wrist and one other extremity of a newborn, preferably after 24 hours of life once the PDA has functionally closed, and the PDA is referencing the ductus arteriosus. Both of these readings should be greater than 95% and there should be less than a 4% difference in the two values indicating a negative screen. If the pulse oximeters read less than 95% or there's a greater than 4% difference, this is considered a positive screen and the test will need to be repeated in one hour. If the infant has a second positive screen, further workup will be necessary including an echocardiogram. For this test to be completed correctly, it is imperative that one pulse ox be placed on the right wrist. 
This is the preductal location. Preductal blood is newly oxygenated and the most oxygenated blood that reaches the brain and right arm prior to the ductus arteriosus. So we discussed CCHD screening. Now we're going to move into five of the CCHDs that this screening is actually designed to detect. The five we will review are Tetralogy of Fallot, Truncus Arteriosus, Total Anomalous Pulmonary Venous Return, Transposition of the Great Arteries, and Tricuspid Atresia, often referred to as the five T's. Let's start with Tetralogy of Fallot. It is a duct-dependent pulmonary circulation defect and the most common cyanotic congenital heart disease. It develops from four defects. So it includes an anterior malalignment of the intraventricular septum, a ventricular septal defect. I'll refer to that as VSD from this point on. It is also characterized by narrowing of the pulmonary outflow tract due to septal deviation causing right ventricular outflow tract obstruction, and lastly, subsequent right ventricular hypertrophy. Clinical manifestations include a harsh ejection systolic murmur heard over the pulmonic area due to pulmonic stenosis. Desaturations are also common with tetralogy of Fallot. However, individuals experiencing higher saturations usually indicate less right ventricular outflow tract obstruction. Unfortunately, there are no prenatal methods to diagnose tetralogy of flow. Another common symptom includes hypercyanotic spells, which are periods of severe desaturation. These periods are usually associated with agitation, fever, or concurrent illness. Agitation and crying increase pulmonary vascular resistance while also increasing heart rate. Subsequently, shortening the diastolic period, ventricular filling is then less, and this adds to the obstruction to the right ventricular outflow from its hypertrophied muscle bundles. This is a vicious cycle which may require a combination of heart rate control and vascular resistance manipulation to break these spells, often referred to as TET spells. Here's a quick clinical pearl. This may be an infant that you are getting a chest x-ray, especially with those hypercyanotic spells, and all of a sudden, looking at your chest x-ray, you notice the heart is shaped like a boot. Yes, like a boot that you would wear on your foot. The boot-shaped heart is a common finding associated with Tetralogy of Fallot. Intervention is determined by the degree of the right ventricular outflow tract obstruction and the limitation of pulmonary blood flow. Monitoring the oxygen saturation closely is very important. Oxygen saturations of less than 80% frequently requires surgical intervention. So an infant that does require surgical intervention, the goal is to repair the VSD as well as repair and reduce the outflow tract obstruction. Furthermore, at the bedside, if your infant is experiencing a hypercyanotic spell or a TET spell, there are a few steps that you can take to help. First, calm the infant down. This will decrease your pulmonary vascular resistance. Then, place your infant in the knee-to-chest position, which will increase the systemic vascular resistance. Then, initiate any oxygen if necessary or some increase 
vents respond well to IV fluid boluses. Although it is not a CCHD, it is important you understand what a VSC is as it can be an isolated finding or connected to other heart defects. It is the most common congenital heart defect present in 50 to 60% of all children with a congenital heart defect. It develops from defective formation of the interventricular septum and it is classified on the basis of its location in the septum relative to the atrioventricular valves and the right and left ventricular outflow tracts. It may not initially present with a murmur, but as the pulmonary resistance decreases with age, a pansystolic murmur may develop and be heard the loudest over the left sternal border. It may also be hemodynamically significant, presenting with features of pulmonary overcirculation, congenital heart failure, and cardiomegaly due to pulmonary vascular congestion. Management for VSD includes treatment with diuretics, frequent electrolyte levels, close monitoring of weight gain, sometimes higher calories per day in the instance of failure to thrive, and surgical patch of a VSD in a symptomatic infant or toddler who has enlargement of the left atrium or ventricle at echocardiography. Now back to our CCHD chat. Next, we'll talk about truncus arteriosus. This develops from a lack of formation of the aorticopulmonary septum. Therefore, there is no separation between the aorta and pulmonary artery. There is a common truncal outflow that does not divide. This is always associated with a VSD and common truncal valve, a tricuspid or a quadricuspid valve. Another clinical pearl is that truncus arteriosus is frequently associated with 22Q11.2 deletion, also known as DeGeorge syndrome. Infants diagnosed with DeGeorge syndrome present with a small mouth or micronathia, a cleft lip and palate, flat cheekbones or molar flattening, and hypocalcemia. Clinical manifestations of truncus arteriosus include presentation within the first 48 hours after birth with symptoms associated with profound pulmonary overcirculation. There's also a loud left sternal border systolic murmur with a loud S2. Management for truncus arteriosus includes managing the pulmonary overcirculation with diuresis and fluid restriction. Also, there should be surgical repair within the first two weeks of birth. Our third CCHD that we will discuss will be total anomalous pulmonary venous return, TAPVR for short. None of the pulmonary veins return to the left atrium with this defect. Blood returning from the pulmonary veins to the right side of the heart cause atrial hypertension with right to left shunting across a PFO and or an atrial septal defect. All the venous return to the heart returns to and mixes in the right atrium before shunting across the intertribal septum and coursing across the tricuspid valve. The saturations in each of the cardiac chambers are exactly the same. Clinical manifestations. The number of veins returning anomalously and the severity of obstruction determine the rate and severity of the manifestation. If there is obstruction, pulmonary venous return is impeded, which can lead to pulmonary venous hypertension and pulmonary edema. Respiratory distress within 12 to 24 hours after birth 
usually causes classic whiteout of the lung fields due to backing up of blood prior to the site of the obstruction of pulmonary vein drainage. This whiteout can be seen on your chest x-ray. Respiratory distress does not respond to oxygen and may be worsened by starting prostaglandins as more blood starts shunting to the pulmonary circulation at the ductal level, causing pulmonary edema or lung bleeding. If there is no obstruction, the anomalous drainage causes cyanosis due to mixing after return to the right side of the heart, but does not cause respiratory distress in the first days after birth. For management of TAPVR, it is considered a surgical emergency in approximately one-third of all obstructed cases. Next is transposition of the great arteries. This is a duct-dependent mixing of circulation. It is the most common cyanotic heart disease manifesting in the first week after birth due to ventriculoarterial discordance. The aorta arises from the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery arises from the left ventricle. Circulation is in parallel with deoxygenated blood in circulation through the aorta, then back into the right ventricle and out of the aorta again. There is a mixing of blood at the atrial level through a PFO, a patent foramen ovale, or an atrial septal defect, or there's a mixing at the ventricular level through a VSD. Clinical manifestations. Cyanosis usually presents within the first 12 hours after birth, and it is not responsive to oxygen or mechanical ventilation. A VSD may delay presentation, and there is usually no murmur. For management of transposition of great arteries, reparative surgery is usually necessary. The surgery consists of switching the great vessels to the appropriate ventricles. This is known as an arterial switch. Respiratory support with oxygen, mechanical ventilation, and initiation of prostaglandin E to maintain the PDA to shunt blood from the aorta into the pulmonary circulation is also necessary. Most patients undergo a catheter-based procedure called a balloon atrial septostomy to help create or enlarge the ASD, the atrial septal defect, to allow more mixing while awaiting surgery. If cyanosis persists despite an open patent ductus arteriosus, a fluid bolus or inotropic support may help improve mixing and systemic arterial saturations. The last CCHD that we will cover will be tricuspid atresia. This is a duct-dependent pulmonary circulation lesion. We discussed earlier the major heart components, one of which was the tricuspid valve, the connection between the right atrium and right ventricle. In this defect, the tricuspid valve is not formed. Therefore, deoxygenated blood is forced to pass through a patent foramen ovale or an atrial septal defect. The blood must then be shunted through a VSD into the right ventricle to reach the pulmonary circulation. Clinical manifestations. Respiratory distress is the most common symptom due to the lack of pulmonary flow. Infants also may experience lethargy, 
poor feeding, and cyanosis. Management of tricuspid atresia initially always provide respiratory support. These infants may need a septostomy within the first few days or weeks of life as it creates or enlarges the atrial septal defect, increasing mixing of oxygen-poor and oxygen-rich blood and allowing more oxygen-rich blood to be delivered systemically. Clinical Manifestations Respiratory distress is the most common symptom due to the lack of pulmonary flow. Infants also may experience lethargy, poor feeding, and cyanosis. Management of tricuspid atresia initially always provide respiratory support. These infants may need a septostomy within the first few days or weeks of life as it creates or enlarges the atrial septal defect increasing mixing of oxygen-poor and oxygen-rich blood and allowing more oxygen-rich blood to be delivered systemically. Okay, let's revisit our case study now that we have reviewed our five T's of CCHD. Baby Daisy, to recap, was an extremely preterm infant being treated for respiratory distress syndrome anemia prematurity, and being evaluated for sepsis. However, she developed a new murmur and continued to experience acidosis and pink tinge secretions. Our differential diagnosis list for baby Daisy includes respiratory distress syndrome, anemia of prematurity, sepsis, and prematurity. In evaluating baby Daisy, an echo was obtained with concern for a PDA. The echo results included an anterior malalignment ventricular septal defect, mild right ventricular hypertrophy, and mild right ventricular outflow tract obstruction. Do you know what baby Daisy was diagnosed with? Baby Daisy's final diagnosis was Tetralogy of Fallot. In this case, Daisy was diagnosed with pink Tetralogy of Fallot. Tetralogy of Fallot is divided into two categories, pink or blue, with blue having more severe right ventricular outflow tract obstruction with a higher peak gradient. Baby Daisy did frequently experience hypercyanotic episodes, our TET spells that we talked about. So remember, TET spells consist of a decrease in systemic vascular resistance or an increase in pulmonary vascular resistance contributing to a right-to-left shunt across the VSD causing marked desaturation. These spells can be precipitated by events such as dehydration or agitation. Calming the baby, providing oxygen, fluid, or placing the infant in the knee chest position will increase the systemic vascular resistance and decrease the length of the spell. I know that was so much information to review, but please take time to enjoy the episode again if there is anything you missed. I hope you have enjoyed the cardiovascular episode of Nikki Ride and Review and you were able to build on your knowledge. Please take time to listen to the other system-based episodes we have recorded or visit our Nikki Ride and Review Facebook page. 
Thank you again for listening. I hope this has been helpful.